The only thing I want to mention is if you, you do get stuck in what we mentioned earlier on compliance, talk to somebody right away. Don't try to fix it yourself. It's a lot harder to fix if things go bad. Um, so talk to somebody right away. We can point you in the right direction or we can help you finish this in a way which is correct. Even if you're just worried, it's a good idea to just figure it out. You know, they say, when you're in trouble, call your lawyer. This is the moment you call your lawyers. Welcome back, listeners, to College Cast. I'm your host, Trevor Potts. This week, we'll be joined for our final part three episode with Amandeep Hare, immigration lawyer with Sadai Law Office, for our deep dive into Canadian immigration questions and how you can navigate your complex journey of being an international student to permanent resident of Ontario. It's a great wrap up to our conversation, so let's not waste any more time and dive right into our conversation with Amandeep Hare. Yeah, perfect. And and you did touch on the express entry, what that looks like in Ontario versus uh, BC, let's say, and the, the different mm-hmm. styles. Um, for students that are particularly looking at the express entry, that's what fits them. That's what they're interested in. Can you talk a little bit about the, the time deadline? I noticed that there was uh, a specific uh, application period for permanent residence within a certain number of days. And then maybe talk a little bit more about that. Sure, we can go into that. Um, so the way it works is, um, so for most students, I'm just going to focus on the one program, um, which most students will qualify for. It's a Canadian experience class. And the way that works is that you must have one year of skilled work experience in Canada in the last three years. So what is one year of skilled work experience again? Is that NLC O, A, or B? Um, and then what will happen is, if you have it in the last three years, you qualify and they just plop you into a pool with everyone else who's applying. And then they'll give you a score. And the way the scores work is they look at your age, your work experience, your education, whether or not some that work experience was in Canada, education was in Canada, and they give you a score out of 1,200. Now, the only way to get full 1,200 is to get a provincial nomination, but 600 points generally are coming from the standard um, applicant pool. And what they'll do is once you get your score, you're going to want to have between 450 and 470. And every, I would say every fortnight, the government does draws out of the pool. Um, They'll do a draw. You'll know what the minimum score is. Lately, I've noticed they're only doing PNP draws. Um, Since the pandemic's been all over the place, how they've been processing the program, I think there'll be, (laughs) I'm hoping for some changes next year. Um, But right now, they're only doing PNP draws. Um, so unfortunately you will need a PNP nomination, but probably starting January 1st, we'll go back to general or Canadian experience class draws. Um, so what will happen is they'll get you there. Once you're selected, you have 60 days to submit the application. Occasionally they'll bump up the time to 90, but say 60. So what I tell all my students is this, make sure before you create your profile, you have all your documents in place because 60 days is not a lot of time. Um, it particularly to get documents. I mean, I can give you a good example right now as I'm doing an application out of Hong Kong. It's taking 60 days just to get a police clearance out of Hong Kong. So we want to get that oh. in advance. Um, so you always, always, always want to get these things in advance, get your documents in place, then make an application towards uh, um, through IRCC. Right. And, and so some of these documents that you're talking about, Police check, um, 
your credential check if you studied maybe elsewhere. What, can you talk a little bit about what you should get, kind of what ducks you should get in line before you create your profile? So the main one, please check, get that right away. They're valid for up to one year. Get that as soon as possible. Um, few exceptions. Um, if you're coming from Mexico, for example, you actually need a letter from IRCC to get the Mexico police clearance. So mm-hmm. a couple of countries are like that. I think New Zealand's another one, which is like that. Um, but if you're from most countries, uh, get the police clearance right away. If you go on IRCC's website, they actually have a great little instruction there. So just say, go into Google, type in, I need a police clearance from, let's say the US. And it'll say, here's the list. This is how you get it from the, you'll need it from what's called the FBI, from the, from the FBI. Um, it's often called your FBI rap sheet, um, but you can get it from there. They'll have instructions on how to get it. And that is taking anywhere between two days and 10 weeks, depending on how you apply for it. Um, so that's, that's the first thing. The other thing I recommend is getting your medicals done before you create your profile. Um, get them done before you create your profile. They're usually valid for up to one year, but get them done before you create your profile. Um, the third thing is if you have foreign education, particularly if your education for your foreign education is a little higher than your Canadian education. Um, for example, let's say you have a certificate in Canada, but a master's degree from back home, you need to get it assessed by a qualified institution. So Three of the ones which are the big ones and that uh, I use are either the World Education Service. Most people use this. Um, they're not my favorite, um, but most people use this. And they're currently taking about three and a half months to get those done. Um, there's also the International Qualification Ass- Applic- Assessment Service. This is run by the Alberta government. I like this one. Uh, the only thing is, uh, they can get it done a lot faster, but you have to capture, the way it works is it's every day except a certain number of applications and they usually fill up very quickly. The third one is University of Toronto Continuing Education Service. Um, that might be convenient for a lot of people in Ontario. So mm. you may wanna look into that. There are a couple more, but I'm not as familiar with those two. Um, there's also some which are very specific to your profession. So, for example, doctors, heck, you have to go through a particular organization whose name off the top of my head, I don't remember, but it should be on the RCC website. Mm-hmm. Um, and a couple other professions, you have to go through a particular area. So, Yeah. And you mentioned, Amandeep, um, when we're talking about medicals and something you want to look at before you uh, complete your profile, there's something that um, I'd like to touch on when it comes to students that are worried about their health status and uh, health needs impacting their status for, let's say, post-grad work permit. Um, uh, I know we've had a number of concerns from students that have mentioned they're less willing to uh, to go up for a health treatment because they're worried that it might affect their kind of permanent residency status or their hopes for PR. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that concern? Sure. Um, I could write a big essay on this. Um, usually this is not a big concern for students, except in a couple of areas that come up. Um, and usually this is, I, I worry more for my older clients, but there are a few things which students should worry about. Um, the way it works for medical admissibility, they look at two things. One, are you bringing something into Canada, which could put a the threat to Canadian citizens and permanent residents. Um, a particular one they watch very closely is tuberculosis. 
So we come from a country mm-hmm. with a history of tuberculosis. Mm-hmm. You can still come in, but they're going to watch you very closely to make sure you don't develop symptoms during the infectious period. Right. Um, another big one, and this is the one I worry more about for particularly international students is anything which, sorry, for most clients is anything which could put a burden on the Canadian healthcare system. Mm-hmm. Um, now, mo- the, well, the way it works is in the past, it used to be very strict. Fortunately, they've sort of liberalized this now. Uh, anything which would cost more than $100,000 over five years is something which would be um, worrisome. Now, a few things which can come up there is diabetes. If you need any sort of surgery, any sort of corrective work, that might be something which could cause some problems. Mm-hmm. Um, they could also be learning disabilities to come up too. Um, they don't care if it's publicly funded. Um, if it's going to cost more than $100,000 a year, it's considered to put an excessive burden on the Canadian healthcare system. So if that comes up, we can look at mitigation plans to get around this. Uh, another big one um, is sexually trans- some sexually transmitted diseases, particularly things like syphilis might come up. Uh, if you have untreated syphilis, I mean, look into this much more closely. They may have you get, you, have you get treatment first and then allow you to get your permanent residence. Um, I hate to say, particularly for young people, that can sometimes be a bit of a worry. <laughs> So that's something which we also keep an eye out for. Um, but generally speaking, most international students don't have a lot to worry. In your 20s, you don't tend to have a lot of health issues. They tend mm-hmm. to develop a little later in age. Um, so some of my older clients, that's usually the first thing I look at. It's like, okay, how many drugs are you taking? Even if they're not publicly funded, how many drugs are you taking? Uh, are any of those drugs rare? This is another thing which can come up. So for example, let's say tomorrow, um, you develop a particular health and there aren't a lot of this particular drug in Canada, that might be enough for the government to say, no, 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 we don't want you here. So um, that being said, like I said, a lot of the stuff is more later in life, as long as it's not those particular things which you can develop at a younger age. Mm-hmm. And if you do have them, we can look at mitigation plans to try to make sure the costs stay low. And it's particularly the first five years is what we're looking at. No, it's really good. It's somewhat linking to that. Um, one of the surveys that we're currently doing right now We've got a fair number of uh, mature students, so those over to age of 25. Um, I wonder if you could expand a little bit on that, on how age impacts your uh, CRS point score, um, whether, you know, if you're, let's say you're uh, wanting to be a student, uh, you're studying overseas, you want to potentially do a master's, let's say, degree uh, in Canada, let's say specifically Ontario, what kind of things regarding age should you be mindful of? Yeah, about age. So the way age works is, age is interesting. It's actually the biggest factor on your CRS score. Um, Second only to your work experience um, and education. So age is a huge factor and it's designed intentionally. They're trying to get people who are younger into the system. Mm -hmm. Now, you said mature students over 25. I'm not hearing red flags from hearing 25, Um, even myself. For CRS purposes, I'm a lot older than 25 now. Um, <laughs> I still get the maximum CRS points. I'm just under 30. I'm still 35, so I'm fine. However, let's say you are, it's once you start turning 36. That's when we start to worry a bit. Every year after 36 until 40, you start losing five points every year. And then it goes mm-hmm. to 10. And eventually once you hit 50, I think it's 55, um, you get no points for your age. Mm-hmm. But you can sometimes offset that by having more work experience. 
Um, so that can be sort of the offset there. However, generally, as you get older, the harder and harder it is to immigrate to Canada. Um, the more you can be dependent on something else to support you, this could be a qualified job offer, mm. or which is um, a qualified job offer is a specific kind of job offer. It's either supported by a work permit, which is specific to that employer, or what's called a labor market impact assessment, or you can be looking at a PNP nomination. But again, uh, PNP nomination, it depends on the province. Like here in BC, it's a lot easier to get you that PNP nomination to boost your CRS. Um, the way we would typically do it is we would apply through one of the programs and you get the 600 points, in which case you're more or less a shoe in for permanent residence. Um, well, to get the invitation to apply. Um, Whereas in Ontario, we sometimes are stuck dependent on the um, random draws. Or we can look at what's called the paper stream, which is actually very similar to the one here in BC. Um, we can look at that as an option as well. Right, right. And you touched upon as well uh, nomination. What Maybe we could look at that a bit. Just um, for students in particular that are looking at their different options, they want to add more points to their score. Um, you've considered, of course, age and language and work experience. Maybe we could look at arranged employment and provincial nomination. Like when we're talking, first of all, arranged employment, what does that look like? Is that kind of uh, an employer that's able to secure them a, a long-term contract? What kind of details do you have for that? Yeah. So most employers, they'll just give you a job offer. Um, unfortunately, that's never enough. Um, so the employers, what they're going to have to do is they're going to actually make you a job offer after going through a big, long process to apply for what's called a labor market impact assessment. I'm going to be honest with you, this is very onerous on an employer. Um, I'm doing one right now, and it's, I mean, it's a drag on the employer because they're waiting months, they're advertising your job, the advertisements themselves that meet a whole host of requirements. And once they do that, then they have to apply, then they have to go through an interview. It's a long process. The other way is, I mean, again, we can go back to the free trade agreements. If you have a country with a free trade agreement with Canada, the employer can actually do what's called a um, LMIE or labor market impact assessment exempt offer of employment, in which case they just make an employment offer online, submit it to ESTC, you get the work permit, then you say, well, I've got the three year work permit for my employer, LMIE exempt, it works. The post-graduation work permit though, no, you cannot use that for this. It has to be employer specific and it has to be through one of these two categories. You get that. The third one you can also look at is there are some other work permits which are also employer specific. For example, or if you can speak French and you come from a French speaking country, you can look at the um, Francophone Mobility Program or probably called the Mobility Francophone. Um, you can get a work permit that way. So that gives you 50 points usually, unless you're at a senior manager. This is like a CEO, CFO, <laughs> right? We call it the double zero and Knox. Um, then you get 200 points. Mm, okay. Um, as for provincial nomination, again, it depends on the province. In Ontario, unfortunately, it just comes down to a random draw. What Ontario does is to say, well, we have a shortage of these skills in the Ontario labor market pool. So we're going to invite all these people for permanent residence. Mm. Um, again, it's one way of doing it. Um, I can't think about half the provinces, that's how they do it. Um, the other way of doing it is what we here in BC do, which is, 
we have specific programs with specific requirements, you make an application to that. And one of the things I should probably let everyone there know, even though you're in Ontario and you graduate from school in Ontario, you might actually qualify for the BCPNP's international graduate stream. And the way that one works is your employer still has to advertise your job unless you're currently working for them for 14 days, but it's a much less onerous advertisement, advertisement process. Mm-hmm. There's no interview. They just say, well, we tried. We didn't get anybody. We're offering it to this person. And then you can get that. Then you take that job offer. You apply for the BCPNP, and the BCPNP will review it. If it, they say it's NOC OA or B, and you graduated from school in Canada, then you get thrown into a pool, and we have our own point system for that. You get selected from that pool, and then you apply for permanent residence that way. Yeah, that's a... Uh... A good breakdown on that. I I think I'm just looking at this in terms of a, a timeline as well. Maybe there's a couple things you can you can highlight along that journey of let's say there's a, a third year student about to finish up their program. They're wondering where do I start when it comes to the post grad work uh, work program. What should I look at first? What do I need to finish before I graduate? Can you maybe touch on a couple sure. points in that journey? Sure. Let's start with the postgraduate. Let's start with, I'm assuming this person, maybe they just finished their final exams. They have not yet got their final grades. Um, So obviously wait for those grades, but as soon as you get the grades and you know you've completed your program, what you want to do is you want to go to your school and get a completion letter. The completion letter will state, this is how, this is what you did. this is how long our program was. So in this case, a three-year program. So they'll say it's a three-year program. So-and-so graduated and at all times was in good standing. That's part one. Part two is you want to pull out your transcript. And then you want to go to your school's website, find out what a full-time course load is the entire time. So I think typically three classes is a full-time course load in most Ontario colleges. Um, so what they will do is they'll pull out the... Um, you pull out that and say, look, I had, compare that to your transcript, say each semester, except during the regularly scheduled breaks. So over summer, you get a break. I was a full-time student. So you want to make sure that's included in your submissions. And then you submit an application online for a post-graduation work permit. Um, and then at that moment, as soon as that application is submitted, you can actually work in Canada under Regulation 186. Keep working. Um, until a decision is made on your post-graduation work permit. The decision is made, you will get a post-graduation work permit in the mail, hopefully positive. Um, so you get your post-graduation work permit in the mail. And then next thing you do is you book you to the, um, that you go down, you get your new social insurance number because it will now be tied to your post-graduation work permit rather than your study permit. And that's your, from there, that's where you start. Now, part two to this is you want to start getting that work experience to qualify for the CEC. Um, I do I do tell people create the profile for the post for express entry right away, uh, but just don't accept any nomination until you have all your documents in order. And the reason for that is the 60 days. So if you know you don't have your documents yet, just refuse that nomination. If you don't refuse it, you get kicked out of the pool and you have to recreate your profile. So. Get your, start getting your documents in order. Start with that police clearance because that can be all over the place. Uh, unless your country is one of those few countries where you need a letter from IRCC, in which case you have to wait. Okay, 
that's done. You have all those together. You've got your work experience. That's when you start applying for your PR. Um, you apply for your PR, you maximize your points. You will need to also get a letter from your employer just stating, I am working for them. I've worked for this much time to prove that you have that one year work experience in Canada. Gather some other evidence like your pay stubs, all that, make sure those are together. And hopefully, I mean, for most international students, I'll be honest, within four years, if you sort of everything sort of starts line up, you should be a permanent resident. Now, unfortunately for a lot of international students, stars someplace don't line up, particularly on the work experience side. Um, it can sometimes take some time to get that work experience. Um, a lot of people say, oh, I just need one year post-graduation work experience. Well, I'll be honest, it takes months to get a job. Um, so if you're looking for a job, I mean, my first job out of law school, I think it took me a good three, four months to get it. Um, so expect that, expect some time. Um, but once all that is done, that's when you can go ahead and apply for. So that's gonna eat into your work permit. Um, and because you only have that 180 days, you wanna try to get that full three years to try to maximize your chances of getting enough work experience. A lot of students, they unfortunately, what happens, they get the job, they get all that, but their post-graduation work permit expires before the one year, and unfortunately, they have to go back. So you really want to make sure you maximize your post-graduation work permit. That's a really good highlight of that whole journey, because it does seem overwhelming, uh, particularly if you're just wrapping up your studies and you're going from set exams and schedules and then you have to kind of create your own schedule for this. Uh, I know one of the presentations you did for CSA, where we talk about Canadian immigration and, and transitioning towards the permanent residency route, you mentioned that there were a lot of changes going on in particular with uh, the, the temporary permanent residency programs and kind of keeping yourself up to date on the latest information. I wonder if you could maybe delve into that a little bit when we're talking about these temporary PR programs, what that looks like kind of in, in a couple of years after you've kind of completed this process and you're transitioning towards PR. Yeah. Um, so this is something which sort of started in the pandemic. They created these temporary programs and they all closed at the beginning of November. Um, so I'm sure there's still a number of listeners who maybe got into that. Um, and there were, there were six categories. Um, there's health, there's essential workers, healthcare essential workers. And the third one was international students. Um, the last one there, it filled up within five minutes. Um, so that gives you an idea how much demand there was. And I think they're accepting 40,000 applicants in that and 30 in the other two. I don't think the healthcare one ever filled up and the essential workers filled up a few months later. Uh, there was another set of three programs. This was French-speaking international students, French-speaking healthcare workers, and French-speaking um, uh, essential workers. Those never filled up because they were accepting limited applications there. Um, so if you got your got into that, you should actually be starting to see decisions coming soon. Now, unless you applied at the very deadline, November 1st, no, but if you applied early on when they opened in March, you should actually be getting decisions right now. So with all PR applications, what happens is you'll get an email. Uh, if you're in Canada, you get an email. Uh, they'll say, congratulations, your application is approved. 
you now need to create what's called your PR portal. And in this, you will submit your photograph, establish you still live in Canada, and report any changes to your family. This is a big one. Uh, if you had a baby, for example, and they were born outside of Canada, you might want to let IRCC know because in the future, if you want to get the baby their permanent residence, you need to have disclosed at this stage. Um, so this is a, one thing which will happen. So you update all your family information in there. You send it in and they'll send you a form back, which is called your confirmation permanent residence, proving that you're a permanent resident of Canada. Back in the old days, you actually had to take this, drive out to the US, come back in, and then have it validated. You don't have to do that anymore, thankfully. Um, so once that's done, a couple of weeks after that, I think it's taking about eight weeks right now, you'll get your permanent resident card. You need this to fly in and out of Canada or travel in and out of Canada as a permanent resident. Um, so you're a permanent resident now. As soon as you get your confirmation permanent residence, you should get a new social insurance number, which I forget, Ontario starts with a four, right? I believe it's five. I guess that makes sense to go to Quebec is four. Um, so you get a five social insurance number. Why is that important? Before you were a temporary resident, you had one with a nine. That's a temporary social insurance number. The one with a five is for anybody in Ontario. Um, again, it's by each region. For example, I grew up in Alberta, so mine's with a six. Somebody here in BC would have a seven. Um, but you get that social insurance number. You need to get that right away because that is your primary vehicle to pay taxes and be employed in Canada. So that's done. And then you want to go apply for OHIP coverage. Um, at that very moment, you're a permanent resident. You have all the rights of Canadian citizenship for access to things like OHIP and Canadian benefits. So head over to the Service Ontario office, get your OHIP coverage get your Ontario um, services card, um, you get that. And then the next things we wanna do is obviously you wanna start looking at options to apply for Canadian citizenship. Um, to apply for citizenship, you need to have 1,095 days in Canada over a three year period. Um, in the last five years, you get, so that's basically three years out of the last five, you apply for citizenship and then you're on your way to becoming Canadian citizen. Oh, that's a really valuable insight, um, particularly when, when you're highlighting a lot of these um, COVID policies, we're talking about the healthcare and, and essential workers and kind of the demands that they're looking to fill. Uh, particularly, one thing that came to mind was the demand for French speaking, that it's unlimited. Yeah, that, but the program is closed now. It's closed now, yeah. So yeah, it closed on November. next. November, early November, I we think. We don't know. Was. We don't know if they're okay. coming back. Um, there is talk of a new program coming down the pipeline, um, but there is no guarantee that there'll be another program coming down the pipeline. Yeah, so about those temporary programs, I mean, I don't know what's going to happen in the future. They closed all of them in November 5th. They keep talking about a new round of temporary programs. But I mean, I'm just shrugging my shoulders at this point. Um, we don't know if there'll be another round of those programs. Um, if they do, great. We can look at those at that time. Um, but those might have just been a one-time off. We're not sure what the government's going to do yet. Um, so if they come up, you, what you want to do is, uh, one, you can take a look at my uh, Insta my Twitter profile. I've been updating that more. My Twitter is uh, I'm gonna hair 87 So that's A-M-A-N-H-A-Y-E-R-87. You can also go look at the Government of Canada's Twitter page. It's uh, Citizenship and Immigration uh, page, but we still CIC. Um, 
Additionally, um, keep an eye out on news releases. Usually they come up on the government's websites if you go to the homepage for the federal government's website. Um, and they should actually be picked up by the mainstream Canadian media. Uh, if not, they'll be actually on our website, which is sedailaw.com. We always post the new programs there. Um, and that's how you can keep track of some of that information. Thanks, Amadeep. Yeah, and we'll we'll post those links uh, in the show notes as well as um, connections to your Twitter and uh, to Sedai Law uh, website as well. And the, the last thing I guess we can do just to wrap up is our little soapbox. If there's anything we missed, uh, I know we talked a lot and we kind of went from topic to topic. Uh, if there's anything that you wanted to speak to specifically, any insight you have or kind of um, something that you want to mention, feel free to go for it. The only thing I want to mention is if you, you do get stuck in what we mentioned earlier on compliance, talk to somebody right away. Don't try to fix it yourself. It's a lot harder to fix if things go bad. Um, so talk to somebody right away. We can point you in the right direction or we can help you finish this in a way which is correct. Um, even if you're just worried, um, it's a good idea to just figure it out. Um, you know, they say, when you're in trouble, call your lawyer. This is the moment you call your lawyer. So this is your phone call. Perfect. Well, thanks again for jumping on the podcast with us. Always love having you here and um, we'll hopefully have you back. We'll get some more feedback from listeners and uh, we can go into, there's a, so much we could talk about when it comes to Canadian immigration, and, uh, especially in the COVID world we're in now. So um, we'd yeah, love to have you back. Sounds good. I look forward to being back. Well, that's a wrap on this week's episode. Thanks again for joining us, listeners, for our conversation with Almadeep Hare, immigration lawyer with Sadai Law Office. For more information on immigration programs, check the show notes for links to Almadeep's blog, IRCC feeds, and other resources available to you. So stay tuned for our next episode coming out next week with Eddie Avila, executive director of USA. And we'll catch you next time on College Cast.